hakika wema nazo fadhili hakika wema nazo Welcome to Movable Dough. This is Steve Danielson. Each week, I get to sit down with a living composer and talk about their lives, their musical journeys, and of course, their music. Join me and take a peek inside the mind of a composer. For a complete archive of episodes, as well as access to the shorter segments called Movable Snippets, visit my website, sdcompose.com slash movabledough. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. My guest today is William White, a native of Bethesda, Maryland. Will now resides in Seattle, Washington, where he serves as music director for Harmonia, combined chorus and orchestra. He has seen success as composer of music for the concert stage, theater, cinema, church, radio, and film. His works have been performed throughout North America, Europe, and Asia. He received a BA in music from the University of Chicago and a master's degree in conducting from Indiana University's Jacobs School of Music. Will White, welcome to Movable Dough. Thank you so much, Steve. Very happy to be here. So I'd like to start today with uh, something that I didn't mention in your bio. Uh, In addition to being a composer and conductor, you're also the co-host of a podcast called The Classical Gab Fest. So I've been listening to The Classical Gab Fest for several weeks now and have become a big fan of the format and the content and I'd like you to talk a little bit about the show, maybe how you got started or, or even why you got started. Yeah, sure. I, I am a podcast addict. I listen to podcasts constantly. And, you know, when you listen to something, a format long enough, you sort of think, well, maybe I could do this. Uh, maybe you've had a similar experience. Um, and one of my favorite podcast brands uh, is the Slate Magazine suite of podcasts. So this is an online magazine. They have a political gab fest, a culture gab fest, a money gab fest. And uh-huh. it's it's this format where they have three hosts and they do three subjects and they have a little intro segment and an outro segment. And it just seemed to me pretty obvious that it would work great for talking about music um, my two co-hosts who you mentioned, one is Kensho Watanabe, a fellow conductor. The two of us had sort of been on and off talking about plans for starting a podcast for a couple of years. Uh, and then when we did a seminar uh, during the first summer of pandemic with our third co-host, Tiffany Liu, uh, the three of us just had such great chemistry that it became obvious that, OK, well, the time is now. Like, we should just do this thing. And so, you know, a podcast is really... When it comes right down to it, it's it's the format plus the personalities, and uh, we just thought that we had a winning combination. And uh, you know, I'm glad to hear that you think that we do, because I, I definitely think that we do. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. What? So I'm wondering, what are you hoping audiences will take away from from what you're doing? Well, we consider our target audience not just musicians and music industry people. We we sort of think of it as being. Um, like the type of person who would go to a pre-concert lecture, mm-hmm. you know, somebody who already likes classical music. We take that as a given. You know, it's the thing that we said early on was we didn't want this to be another 101 kind of source of information. And it's not because there's anything wrong with that. I mean, that's very good. That's very useful content to have out there. But a lot of people are doing that and doing it very well. So we are preaching to the converted. And basically, we're using classical music 
as a lens to see the world, because that is really how we see so much of the world because of our profession. And so because of that, you know, we are able to talk about broader topics than just music. We do a lot of segments that are about music. You know, we watch concerts and talk about those. We have the segment at the end of the show where we each recommend some music that we really like and are listening to. But, you know, we read like novels and theoretical treatises and articles about society and politics and culture that have some connection to classical music. And because of that, you know, we can really go for a very broad set of issues. And, and that's what I that's what keeps me so engaged with it. You know, I mean, I, I just look forward every week to uh, to, to working on the show. <laughs> so I, I did want to thank you because I you invited me on to be a, a host, yes. or a, host a, a guest on your podcast. And I, I really appreciate it. And I do recommend everyone out there to go and listen to the Classical Gab Fest because it, it really is a lot of fun. So let's talk about more about you now. Let's go back to your formative years. Mm -hmm. So I understand you started out as a violist. So why viola and not violin? You know, uh, I had a very honest reaction to the viola. When I was in fourth grade, we had these musicians come in and demonstrate all of the different instruments of the orchestra to us. And I don't think I knew what a viola was before that. And somebody played the violin, and I'm sure that they played it quite nicely. But then they explained that there was this other instrument called the viola, which was lower, and it was mellower and richer. And I thought, wow, I like that mellower, richer thing. You know, that, that <laughs> other thing is kind of screechy. Um, so I, I just, I liked the sound. And I still do. I still think it's a fantastic instrument. So did you start um, taking like Suzuki lessons or no, I took school group orchestra lessons, or group lessons um, in sort of, you know, quote, quote unquote, elementary school orchestra, you know, which is really a group lesson. And uh, and the, the guy teaching the class was a saxophone player. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, God bless him. I mean, he, he did a fine job with it. Um, but, uh, yeah, th I never ended up taking private lessons. I just kept doing music class in school and, and we had orchestra in middle school and high school. You know, we, we had a very robust, um, music education program in, in the public schools where I was growing up in Bethesda and, um, you know, sort of separately, I got heavy into just like, I fell in love with music and it was because of that entry point through the public school system. But um, it was also through like extracurricular listening. You know, I mean, not everybody who played, you know, a string instrument in, in the fourth grade orchestra, then like went home and listened obsessively to Handel and Vivaldi. I mean, pro probably very few of them did. But you know, it's like, I mean, a similar thing happens, I think, to kids who, you know, they, they find some book at school that they really like, and then they're turned on to reading for the rest of their lives. And then they go home and they read all day. I mean, that, that's really what happened to me. Uh-huh. So one last question about the viola. Do you ever get tired of viola jokes? Um, I, I'll tell you this much. I don't think that they're nearly as funny as conductor jokes. <laughs> I, I think conductor jokes are like very well-deserved and very hilarious. And then, of course, there's that famous joke that, that combines the two. Well, there are, there are a couple jokes that combine the two. But the one that I like is, um, you know, if, if you're driving down the street and you see a, a violist and a conductor standing in the middle of the road, which one do you hit? And uh, the answer is the conductor, business before pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I'm going to have to remember that one. <laughs> so 
So you were you were playing classical music growing up. You you say you were listening to it as well. Is that pretty much all you're listening, or are you listening to other stuff when you were growing up as well? No, when I when I was a young child, when I was eight or nine, I was very heavily into Elvis, and I don't know how that happened because my parents weren't into it, you know. But um, somehow it bubbled up through the culture. I don't know. I got very into Elvis, and then into the Beatles. And I never crossed the Rubicon into the Rolling Stones. But then before I would have gotten into the Rolling Stones, um, when I was in middle school and and sort of going through my little dark goth phase, um, I got very into um, the... the music of the region where I now live, you know, the grunge era, Nirvana and Soundgarden and uh, and Pearl Jam and stuff like that. So I, I did like that. I mean, so I would say that the Beatles and Nirvana are sort of my lasting um, uh, pleasures from that era of, of being into pop music. But, you know, by the time I was 13 or 14, I, I had really embraced classical music in a big way. And I wasn't listening to much else. I was going deep rather than broad already. Nice. So when did you start writing music? Um, I think I was about 11 or 12. And uh, my mother had gotten me a small electronic keyboard, you know, probably only had three or four octaves on it. And I didn't have lessons. I had to figure out what the notes were from plucking the strings on my viola and just listening and figuring out what the notes were. And um, just through sheer force of will and, and sort of a determined... Uh, attitude that I maintained towards doing puzzles, I, I sort of sussed it out. And, and I figured out what the scales were, and I figured out what the chords were, and I figured out re- how properly to read treble and bass clef, because, you know, I had been come up on alto clef. I mean, that was sort of all I knew. I mean, it's very, very funny. Sort of, sort of backwards from the rest of us. Very much backwards from the rest of us. I mean, you know, they taught us what treble clef was, but, you know, it just wasn't like in my day-to-day, I didn't have to use it. So, so I figured all of that stuff out, and... Um, I, I started figuring out how to write the music down that I was sort of futzing around with on the keyboard. And lo and behold, by the time I was 12, I mean, I remember when I was in seventh grade, we, we were reading A Midsummer Night's Dream and, and you had a, uh, there was an assignment to do some kind of a creative response. And one of the options was you could write music about it. And that's what I did. And so those, those are, you know, I think I wrote three short little pieces. Like piano pieces or? Piano. And I think clarinet because I had a friend who played clarinet and we were in the group together who was working on the, on the little project. And, um, you know, these are very short little things. But uh, those those I, w- I would count them as like my first little real pieces, you know, something that was started and finished. Yeah. And that's awesome because then you get introduced into transposing instruments right away as well. Which I don't awesome. know how I figured that all out. <laughs> yeah. I really don't. I mean, maybe I didn't. You it, probably it wrote it really and <laughs> he tried to play it and like, wow, that doesn't work with the piano. What happened? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. But eventually I figured that stuff. Out, yeah, luckily. that's awesome. So so like me, you have a degree in conducting and not in composition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, do you see yourself foremost as a conductor who composes on the side or the other way around? Or do you think those two ideas are pretty evenly split? In my life, it turns out that they're pretty evenly split. And it, it depends on like the year, really. I mean, during the pandemic year, I was very much a composer who <laughs> did not conduct. And, um, you know, but most of the time, like my my career path has been in conducting. I mean, I was the assistant conductor of the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra, um, been on staff of universities conducting. I've done, you know, youth orchestras, and now I have this um, very kind of thriving community music group. So, you know, that that's what's paid the bills. Um, and, you know, just in terms of like, you know, the portion of my annual salary that comes from composition, 
it's it's only been one or two years when that's been like the main thing and that that was those were times when i didn't have a conducting job and even when that that was the main source of my income it was mostly i was writing orchestrations um and doing sort of more like commercial music type stuff um for music theater and things so um you know in my heart of hearts i would say i'm a composer first but you know, more more like 50-50 in, in real life. I don't know. It's, it's kind of hard to say. Maybe I'm just lying to myself. I guess I'm not. <laughs> yeah, so you mentioned that your career took you in several different directions, you know, Cincinnati, Chicago, Portland, mm-hmm. and finally to Seattle, where you are mm-hmm. now. Uh, so you moved here to take over direction of Harmonia. Uh, I'd love you to tell us a little bit more about Harmonia. What makes this ensemble unique? Uh, and something that you wanted to be part of that moved you up into the Pacific Northwest? Well, I thought it was pretty darn unique until I knew that there was another chorus and orchestra in the same city directed by, uh, you know, the person I'm talking to right now. But, um, well, you you know how unique it is to have a, a sort of what, what more or less amounts to an oratorio society, um, you know, a chorus plus an orchestra that concertizes one. Now, in the case of Harmonia, um, you know, it's... They are really equal forces in in terms of the makeup of the organization. So, you know, sometimes we have chorus-only concerts or orchestra-only concerts, but the basic paradigm of our programs is that both the chorus and the orchestra are included and featured. But what I love about this group is um, they're very much music nerds that are like super hardcore into it. I mean, these are like my people, very much so. And so the um, I would say that the impetus that I get from them is to do really interesting things with the programming. You know, I mean, they would not like it if I just did the best hits all the time. Um, you know, they want a little bit of, of that kind of um, bread and butter repertoire. And in particularly, they love play, playing and singing Bach. So, so we do a fair amount of Bach and Handel. Um, but you know, like I did a concert where the, the theme was all about music of world war one and it was a very multimedia show in that the first piece was a chorus and orchestra. The second was a string quartet movement. The third thing was a piano concerto. The fourth thing was an orchestra piece. Then there was another chorus and orchestra thing. And, you know, I can't remember what the rest of it. And, and there was an acapella piece. So they really like this kind of um creativity in the programming and that's what makes it so rewarding for me and so much fun that's awesome so i'm i'm curious since uh during the pandemic i know harmonia probably wasn't able to do as much like you said you became primarily a composer during that time <laughs> I, i've heard that you said that you had a sort of prolific year mm-hmm. uh during the pandemic uh as far as composition so what kept you going? You didn't have the ensembles performing your stuff. So what was driving you during that time? Well, you have to understand, Steve, that um, whenever I am doing one thing, it makes me want to be doing the other thing. So, you know, the 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 year, I guess the two years before I started with Harmonia, those were the years when I was doing heavy orchestration and composing and stuff like that. And I thought to myself, I should really get a more steady income stream and I should, you know, avail myself of this um, conducting thing that I supposedly do well and try and get a job. And then this amazing job opened up and it all really worked out. And then I was very happy. And then I thought, oh, no, I'm not going to have the time that I need to compose. 
And so then, you know, my first year and a half of working at Harmonia, I did not compose quite as much. I mean, it was mainly in the summers. And so then it was like, ooh, now I get to compose. I mean, as soon as we canceled our first concert, I just like started writing up a storm because I had all of these things on the back burner, you know, that I'd been thinking about that I just hadn't had the time to be working on. So that was the impetus. It was like it was like releasing a, a, a coil, you know, releasing a spring that had been holding up a, this tension that wanted to, to let it release. Nice. And so are you, are you while you were writing, were you like, oh, I can't wait to get back into the conducting and and now you're starting that again and you know the timing actually worked out pretty well by the time that the uh, the pandemic year of 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 you know really lockdown of concerts was over um you know i had written most of the pieces that i wanted to write and 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 i was yeah it was time to get back to conducting great so you know i've heard that you are a huge fan of the works of beethoven <laughs> yeah so i i want to know what what have you learned from studying beethoven's works you know, how does it influence how you write and how you work um, you know, when we think of Beethoven, we largely think of his use of structure and the way that he structures harmonic rhythm. And so, you know, harmonic rhythm being the pace at which the harmonies change. Do they change every two bars? Do they change every two beats? Do they change every eighth note? And he's just the master of that. I mean, that's how he builds his large scale forms or even his forms on the phrase level. You know, with Beethoven, I mean, he he sometimes um, casts dispersions upon for not being quite such a good melodist. I think that there's a lot of melody in his music, and I think that he actually could write very beautiful melodies. But more to the point with Beethoven is the the blocks of harmony, that that kind of structure. I mean, if you look at even something like um, his Sixth Symphony, I mean, that's all about harmonic rhythm that 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 piece is like i mean you know there's these little motive motives that repeat over and over again say the same thing the fifth symphony say the same thing of most of his pieces um but you know it's all about the bar to bar level the progression of harmonies and he's very good at um weaving in uh pedal points and not just pedal points but roiling pedal points. You know, with Beethoven, it's not usually just a single note underneath the, the harmony. It's like da da something like that, you know? So um yeah, I mean that's my big takeaway from him is just how to structure the harmonic buildup and maintain and increase intensity. And yeah, I mean, he's the form guy par excellence. So that's what I love about Beethoven. That's awesome. Are there any other composers that you find have influenced you as you progressed? <laughs> well, like every composer, I mean, really, you know, that's the thing about being a, a conductor of the standard repertoire. I mean, maybe you find this, this the same way um, is that, you know, you prepare these scores. And I think because I'm a composer as well, when I'm conducting something and analyzing a piece of music, I really analyze it as a composer, like as a composition. You know, I really take it apart and look at it on the motivic development level and on the structural level and on the level of orchestration and stuff. And so, you know, you really internalize these pieces and thereby these great composers sort of become your composition teachers, you know? And so it would be hard for me to name a composer whose work I have conducted who hasn't had some kind of an influence on me. And, you know, I'm not like um, 
a certain breed of contemporary composer who who want to say that like that they have no influences that they invented their musical language from you know uh, fr from from scratch I mean that would just be like such an obvious lie if I were to say that because my influences are stamped all over my music for one thing but also I just feel that like you know part of what attracts me to this music is the tradition and part of what attracts me to writing music is that I'm writing in a tradition. And I feel that by writing in the tradition of these giants, I can try to build off of what they did and take it further, combine it. You know, I mean, like, there's no way that um, Henry Purcell and Sergei Rachmaninoff could have known each other. But I'm living, you know, 400 or 80 years after their lifespans. And I know their music, so I can like combine certain aspects of them into one thing. And that's, to me, tremendously interesting. And what comes out is my voice, because I'm combining them the way that I, only I can like, they, they've gone through the filter of my brain, you know? So that's that's me, what, what the end result is. Um, so yeah, I mean, Beethoven's a big influence, but like lots of people are big influences. <laughs> All right, so I got one more question for you before we take a quick break here. Um, what book have you read lately that you can recommend to our audience, whether music related or something you read for fun? What is something that you think everyone should check out? Well, the the book that I read most recently is actually a book that we read for, sort of for our podcast because we interviewed the author. But it's the relatively recent biography of Mozart by Jan Swafford, who is this amazing American biographer of all of these old Viennese composers. So he did Brahms, he did Beethoven, now he's done Mozart. He also did Charles Ives, but I didn't read that book because I'm just not very interested in Charles Ives. Um, so... I mean, that's a very long book. It's like 800 pages of, of, you know, about a guy who lived to be all of 36 years old. Um, but, you know, with Mozart, it's like, I mean, it sustains the interest. I mean, he's such a great composer. And it's and, and especially if you know his music, um, it's it's very interesting. I mean, here's another case of where the writer is a composer himself. So he is really giving that kind of um, composer's I don't want to say vocabulary, but insight into how the pieces are written and what they are about and what they're trying to communicate. So he's a great writer in that respect, and he's a great researcher, and he puts it all together. Um, and then, like, I don't know, I'm, I'm like a big Schopenhauer guy. I think everybody should read something at least about or by Schopenhauer, but uh, that's, that's probably not a very popular opinion. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll check those out. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will listen to some of Will's compositions. Welcome back. I'm talking today with William White. So we're going to start today with Kyrie for a cappella chorus as a choral guy. That's the one I was drawn to first. Uh, so this is a beautiful piece, Will. You seem to stick to a pretty traditional form of the Kyrie. Uh, three times Kyrie eleison, three Christe eleison, then the three Kyrie eleisons again. Uh, not venturing too far in terms of harmonic structure. Uh, so could you tell us why you made some of these choices, sort of keeping it within this nice box here? Well, I like imposing rules on myself as a composer. And especially if there's some rule that's like tied to a historical reason and then I can exploit a loophole, that's that's like my favorite thing. So this piece, this Kyrie, is really my first professional composition. Mm. 
Um, I had written a senior thesis in my my senior year of college, which I continue to consider my opus one. You know, that's that's my first piece that like is in in my catalog, and that has you know been performed since. Um, but then. I, I got a job conducting a small church choir in Exurban, Chicago, uh, in a town called Barrington, Illinois. And I immediately set to writing music for them. I mean, I was there to direct the choir, but, you know, in my mind, it's like I told you, in my heart, I'm a composer. So in my mind, my job was to, like, write a ton of music for them. And I did over the course. I was only there for a year, and I wrote over an hour of music um, for them, just in the form of all of these anthems with brass and chorus and strings and organ and all of this kind of stuff. And this is the first piece that I wrote for them. And, yeah, like you say, I mean, you know, there's this idea of the Tridentine Kyrie, where each of the phrases is repeated three times, and that has a very ancient tradition to it. And so my goal was to just ex go exploring as much as I could, given that restriction. Mm -hmm. And like you say, I mean, you know, the harmonies are not like anything groundbreaking, but they do wander a little bit. And I think that this was mainly uh, a chance to explore some different textures. And, you know, at this stage in my career, one of the great things about having this job and being able to write all of this music for it was I was writing anthems. And as you know, a church anthem, it's only supposed to be like three to five minutes. And in a way, there could have been nothing better for my life and development as a composer than to have that restriction placed on me for my first year of really writing music professionally. You know, so by the end, I had I had formed the foundations of, of the main like strains of music that I would go on to write for the next, you know, and, until this day, I mean, the next 15, 20 years. All right. Well, we are going to listen to it. It's a gorgeous piece and you're going to love this. Uh, we're going to listen to this recording made by the St. Thomas, the apostle church with William White conducting. We're going to turn next to a piece, which I believe we pronounce Haumea, uh, for brass quintet, organ, and percussion. So this is the first movement from your suite, The Dwarf Planets. 
So I assume this is in response to, or perhaps in addition to Holst's planets. Is, is that? That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, this is a piece for brass ensemble. So brass quintet plus percussion, no, j just timpani and organ. And this was also an outgrowth of some of my work in Chicago area church music. Uh, I was the music director of, of a different church a couple years later in Barrington, Illinois, another suburb or exurb of Chicago. Oh, excuse me, of uh, Hinsdale, Illinois. And um, there was a resonant brass ensemble there, and I wrote some stuff for them. And then they commissioned this separate, just purely instrumental piece for me. And I don't remember how I got the idea, but um, this was probably not long after the time when Pluto was like downgraded from being a planet. And they they came up with this new designation of the dwarf planets. It was and a sad day. Sad yeah, day. Yeah, yeah. Very sad day for the uh, for the Pluto lovers out there. Um, although, hey, who's to say that a dwarf planet or That's right. a dwarf planet is a lesser entity than a, than a regular planet? I mean, you know. I mean, hey, they've got pieces written about them here. So, I know, again, I don't exactly know how I stumbled on this idea, but... What was interesting to me about this little set of five dwarf planets was, yes, they had some of the planets were named after Greek and Roman gods, like the, the planet planets, but the, the first and the last one are named after Polynesian gods. And so that just, you know, it's like, wow, what, what do I do with that? How do I make like a, a, a coherent suite of works where, you know, there's some kind of a, a reference to the mythology from the Greek and the Roman stuff. And then from these Polynesian, you know, one is from Easter Island. I think the other is from maybe uh, Hawaii. You know, there, it was just it was just tremendously fun to do. So, uh, you know, this this movement, Haumea, the the idea behind this God is that um, the God begets the next generation. And then I believe the the God's child begets the further generation with the god. So the god is like also the father and the grandfather of the next generation and the great-grandfather of the next generation. Huh. So that's suggested to me uh, like a theme in variations. Yeah. And so I wanted something that would have a little bit of that kind of mm, pentatonic flavor, you know, that you get in a lot of folk music traditions around the world, but that also had, um, you know, this generation, you know, omnis generationis kind of a, <laughs> an idea to it. Um, and so that's what it is. And, 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 you know, I, this piece has a lot of counterpoint in the theme and variations, which, um, I don't know, I'm pretty proud of actually. I, I think that this is a well put together piece. Um, and there's a lot of stuff for the organ to do and for, and for the brass players to do. Uh, and, and, you know, you were talking about influences before, um, this piece starts in uh, in D flat major with like big kind of barbaric, you know, um, drums and, and the brass and stuff. And to me, the influence there is actually of Janacek. Um, the, the, the movement goes in different directions after that. It has all sorts of different stuff going on. But that the opening, I, I think of as being sort of a Janacek-y sinfonietta kind of a thing. Nice. Well, we are going to listen to this movement, Haumea, uh, from the Dwarf Planets, uh, played here by the commissioning group, the Gargoyle Brass.
right, we're going to turn next to your piano sonata. So I read online that this work was a collaboration between you and a former student of yours, Joseph Vaz. Uh, I'd love to know how this collaboration came about. And I'd love to know also what you learned through the process of writing a piano sonata. Oh, boy. Um, well, so this was a pandemic piece. Okay. This was actually my first pandemic piece. And this is when 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 you said that, um, you know, when did you like change over into writing music? I mean, this as soon as we canceled the first concert, the writing was on the wall. I was like, OK, I'm going to hunker down and write myself a moody piano sonata. And that's that's exactly <laughs> what I did. Um, so when, when I was in Cincinnati as the assistant conductor of the symphony, part of my job was to conduct the youth orchestra there. And boy, there were just some amazing students in that group, you know, very high level ensemble. Many of those kids went on to conservatory um, and now some of them have gotten like big jobs in orchestras and stuff. It's kind of amazing. But one of the real standout students in that group was a young man who was in the bass section, string bass. And then all of his friends would tell me like, you know that Joseph is like actually a pianist. I was like, oh, really? I, should, I guess I should hear him play piano sometime. And I heard him play piano. I was like, oh, my gosh. I mean, I thought that he was like an amazing bass player. But boy, when you heard this kid play the piano, um, it was really something else. And, you know, some students you just main, you know, you, you form a relationship and you maintain contact with. And uh, I was always very happy to support Joseph uh, in his educational studies and career in whatever way I could. He ended up going to... Um, Indiana University, which had been my alma mater of my master's degree. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that that definitely kept us in touch a little bit more than it would otherwise. And he was just, you know, he's a very precocious guy. I mean, he's, he's, he's smart. He started as a math major. Um, you know, he, he can do sort of everything. And uh, actually, you'll if people listen to my podcast, you'll hear him on there quite frequently. He, 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 he's like our unofficial official intern is what we call him. Oh, that's your intern. Okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Gotcha. And so like he, he organizes some of the games for us and then he'll come on mic sometimes um, for different segments. But um, yeah, he's gone on to get a master's degree and now he's working on a doctorate in piano. So, I mean, this is like a very serious pianist, yeah. scholar, uh, <laughs> brilliant guy. And... Because of that, you know, I mean, we had been talking for a long time about me writing him a sonata for, for one of his degree recitals, really. Mm -hmm. And, you know, having followed his career so closely and like listening, listened to his various recitals along the way and seen the repertoire that he was playing, like, I knew this, this kid could do anything. I mean, he can do anything. He can play anything on the piano. I mean, it's like, it's like having Horowitz at your beck and call. <laughs> and he was very enthusiastic, I mean, about doing one of my pieces. And so... You know, I've written music for very talented musicians before, but never anything quite for virtuoso like Joseph. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, that was just a new set of challenges. I mean, it, it made me rise to the occasion to write for him. And also because he kind of he's he's kind of brilliant too. So I wanted to write something that was very rigorous in its compositional construction. Uh, but then I also, you know, I mean, I'm always trying to write music that's listenable. Too, yeah, you know, and so I wanted to write something that like would balance all of these, these exigencies. So and were you were you talking back and forth with him, sending him drafts and 
things like that? Or Yes, I, I don't send performers much. In fact, I have this sort of underhanded um, policy of where when I'm writing something and I have a question if it's technically possible, I'll, use it, I'll usually send it to a performer who plays the same instrument who's not the person I'm writing for. Uh-huh. Because I don't want the person who I'm writing for to just like look at it and be like, you know, get freaked out because they're going to have to practice. I want somebody <laughs> to tell me if it's technically possible from an objective point of view. Now, there are some things that I'll send to the performer because I want to flatter the performer's um, personality or their, you know, technical capabilities or stuff like that. In Joseph's case, I, I don't think I sent him too much because I knew that he could do anything. And I sort of wanted it to be a little bit more of a surprise, but I did send him a few things along the way. I'm sure mm-hmm. of that, um, you know, just to kind of check in or to show him like how the piece was shaping up sure. and stuff, but, but more, more so I, I finished it and sent it to him. And then he played through it several times sent back feedback and then I made adjustments based on that. But but the piece had found its full form by then. So it is a collaboration, but um, it's also like you're writing a letter to somebody in a way too, you know, and you want to express something that they can then express back to you. Sure. Well, unfortunately, we don't have time to listen to the entire thing, but we are going to listen here to the second movement performed here by Joseph Foz.
All right, our last piece today is Acadia Fanfare for Orchestra. So I understand that you were commissioned to write this to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the founding of Acadia National Park. So as this national park sits on an island off the southern coast of Maine, uh, it's not surprising I'm hearing waves and water represented in this piece. What else were you hoping to capture in this fanfare? Well, Acadia means a lot to me, and that's because of my connection to a music school that's very close by called the Pierre Monteux School, which is a summer training institute for conductors and orchestral musicians. And I went there as three years as a student. I then returned as a staff member, as sort of associate director of the of the festival for five years, and then I returned a couple years as composer in residence. So um, a long-lasting relationship that started when I was, I think, 21 years old and continues to this day. Also very important in my life because that's how I met my co-hosts of the Classical Gab Fest, Tiffany and Kencho. They were, they were both students there. Um, so it was obviously a special thing when this organization that I was so closely connected to commissioned me to write a piece for one of their main concert programs for the summer. So not only did I want to, you know, connect the piece and the soundscape of the piece to the park itself. So like you say, there's the waves and there's the birds and there's, you know, the the various, the, the whales and everything, you know, kind of crashing and stuff. Um but I wanted to connect it to the musical heritage of the school. And the school was founded by a, a very famous French conductor named Pierre Monteux, who conducted the world premiere of the Rite of Spring and of Daphnis and Chloe and was like very active in Paris. Then he married a woman from Maine, moved there, um, and lived out the rest of his life and taught on this little bit of farmland that he had, um, he had purchased. So when you hear the waves, they're not any waves, they're Debussy waves. You know, they, I mean, it's like a very much a nod to la mer. And when you hear the uh, interior bit of the park, the the association that I was trying to make was with the music actually of Stephen Sondheim, because the current director of the Monteux School, he and I are both Sondheim freaks. And that's like where we totally have bonded. So one of my greatest, greatest, most favorite moments in my entire musical life is we were at the dress rehearsal. Of the of Acadia Fanfare, and I was conducting. And the maestro, you know, the, the music director of the festival, he sits uh, in the back of the orchestra and stares down the conductor. <laughs> and I hadn't told him about this. And we got to the sort of central theme where it's 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 like a very clear Sondheim reference. I mean, it's not a quote, but it sounds like Sondheim's music. And he just he'd been following the score. He looked up at me, made eye contact. And I was still conducting, and he just mouths the word Sondheim. And I just looked back at him. I said, yeah. Mm -hmm. And that, that was just so, I mean, it's like, you know, talking about like, you know, you write these pieces, and maybe you feel the same way. It's like, they're, they're like writing a letter and putting it into a bottle and throwing it, you know, into the middle of the ocean. You just never know if people are, if anybody's going to hear it, if people are going to understand what your meaning was, but especially with something that was personal like that, you know, this was like a very um, like ESP kind of a message that I was trying to send to like, you know, this mentor of mine who's a friend and somebody who I really respect and we've connected on this level that he got that was so fantastic. And, and I'll never forget that. That is fabulous. Well, we are going to listen to the Janacek Philharmonic Orchestra with William White as conductor performing Acadia Fanfare.
right. Well, Will, what are you working on now that you can tell us about? Do you have time for composition with the podcast and harmonia and everything going on? I've had to make time for it because um, I have this nasty habit of programming my own um, non-existent pieces as an impetus <laughs> for me to actually write them. So uh, Harmonia Orchestra and Chorus has a big concert coming up on April 24th of our current year, 2022, uh, at Ben Royal Hall, which I know is a very familiar uh, venue for you. Oh, yeah. You guys perform there all the time. This is going to be our first performance there in a good many years, like decades. And so I wanted to do something really special. The main featured work on the program is going to be Ravel's complete Daphnis and Chloe. Oh, wow. Um, which is like all time bucket list item. I mean, you know, I, I can be very happy with my life as a conductor having done that. So I'm really looking forward to that. But then I've also programmed a new piece of my own. And in a way, it's a response to Daphnis and Chloe and the sort of Grecian, ancient Greek themes therein. It's called The Muses, and it's for chorus and orchestra. Now, the piece, I, 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 I hesitate to say this because it's like a really big buildup, but I'll just tell you like how it sort of works. It's like the Enigma Variations meets the planets. Now that makes it sound like it's gonna be the best thing in the world. I don't know if it's gonna be the best <laughs> thing in the world, but basically it's sort of a theme in variations where there's an opening theme where the choir intones the muses and, and, and the text is an ancient Greek text and they sing in ancient Greek. I mean, uh -huh. it's transliterated, you know, it's not, it's not that yeah. hard to do really. I mean, well, maybe I'm just saying this because I'm worried <laughs> that they're going to freak out on me. But um, so, so at the beginning they sing muses. The muses come from the word muine, which means to give joy to the people. And, and it's sort of just talks about who they are. And then, as you probably know, there are nine muses in ancient Greek mythology. There's the muse of dance and the muse of comedy and the muse of tragedy and the muse of lyric poetry and the muse of astronomy. And so each one of these muses, I'm giving their own character piece, like something like the planets, or in my case, the dwarf planets, um, but they're all threaded together. It's one continuous piece. Uh -huh. And so... And, and the material for each one of their little character pieces comes from that opening intonation. Uh -huh. So it is a theme in variations. It's like, it's like the Elgar Enigma variations, but if each of my friends were a Greek muse, you know? And so, so each one tries to get to the, to, the, um, to the character that they represent, but also keeps that running thematic material going. So that's that's what I'm currently at work on. I'm I'm up to the eighth muse, so I'm I'm very close, which is good because the concert is in like uh, two months. <laughs> we have to start rehearsing in a couple of weeks, so um, I, I do frequently do this to myself. But that that's what I'm working on. That's what I'm really looking forward to. All right, well, listeners, if you're out there, if you're in Seattle around April 24th, then or come anywhere, check out Harmonia. it'll be it'll be uh, live stream tickets will be available. Oh, as nice, well. so nice. Mm -hmm. So if my listeners want to learn more about you and your music, where can they find you online? Go to willcwhite.com, W-I-L-L-C-W-H-I-T-E.com. Uh, I post all of my music there. There's links to my YouTube channel, which has scrolling score videos of all of my music. And I write extensively about my pieces on there. And, um, and that's also a great way to find uh, the Classical Gab Fest, which you can also find on, on uh, any, any of the finest podcast apps. Fabulous. Well, hey, listeners, especially if you're new to the show, please take some time to go back into the Movable Dough archives and check out some of my older interviews uh, with composers like Dan Forrest, Rollo Dilworth, Libby Larson, Rosephanie Powell, Paul Aitken, and Wayne Lytle, the creator of Anna Music. 
Visit sdcompose.com slash movable dough to find the full archive of episodes. And while you're at it, don't forget to look up the Classical Gab Fest and give them a listen. You won't be disappointed. Well, Will White, it has been a joy to talk to you today. Thank you for joining me on Movable Dough. Thank you so much, Steve. And thanks again for coming on the Classical Gab Fest. It was a real pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. Well, my guest today was composer William White. If you have a recommendation for a future guest or an idea for the show, please email me at movabledoe at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving.